The Alchemy of Transforming Trauma. <laughs> she's still doing a little dance when she says it. And I have noticed that we always say it the same way. Right? I know we do, don't we? We, we need to try it up. Change it up, man. Change it up, man. (laughs) Well, welcome to our episode today. And today we're going to be looking at working with trauma in the body. But before we do that, Mm. how are you, Jude? Well, it's funny you should ask. The last podcast that we recorded was um, about trauma in the body. Mm -hmm. And I've been reading a lot about it and listening a lot about it um, in preparation for that. And one thing I noticed that when that happens is that something happens in my psyche because I recognise so much of it both in past behaviours and also in present behaviours, that sometimes I get into a kind of exhausted state, which matches really well with what it all says. You know, I get into this kind of, there will nothing I can do makes a difference state and a state of, I feel so um, much resonance with so many of the things I'm reading and hearing about that it feels overwhelming and that I can't, it feels like there's a huge mountain to climb. And I'm mentioning that because one thing that came up just thinking about that was that actually every breath has an opportunity for a little tiny rebirth and a little tiny moment of peace and softness and compassion and that's all that there is and also that even the physical the visual metaphor of the mountain when you imagine yourself climbing a mountain it's really hard work and when you imagine yourself imagine yourself walking down a mountain it makes it so much easier yeah so I just feel like I need to remind myself that having thought about nothing but trauma for the last three or four days, I need to remind myself that I'm coming down a beautiful mountain. Yeah. And that with every breath, I can have a new experience. Because if I forget that, then it can feel like such a big task that I want to give up. And that's just the natural response of somebody who's had some trauma in their past. And we've all had trauma in some way, yeah. shape or form. We've all carrying stuff. We just yeah. are. And it's when you face it and look at it that you start to just become aware of it. And then it, it can feel completely overwhelming. It's interesting that you say that because when we were doing, like we were focusing on narcissism for a little while and I was, again, immersing myself in narcissism and narcissistic abuse. And, and, I, and it actually really disturbed me for a while because even though I feel like I'd dealt with it on some levels, I then started to kind of really analyze it within my life as it is right now and I started to get very paranoid about certain people and certain things that were going on which now I'm not focusing on it are not so present interesting so on that note then if you're listening to this podcast and enjoying it as I very much hope you are remember that it's not the whole of everything that whatever you've experienced in your lifetime it's not the whole of everything and, and it doesn't define who you are. doesn't define who you are. And it's actually nothing to do with who you are. As I love to say to my friend who I'm staying with, you're not special. <laughs> and what I mean by that is this has come from Elizabeth Gilbert. None of us is special. We're both, we're, you know, divine love blesses everybody equally. So you are not so damaged that you don't deserve divine love. As in, you're not special. Yeah. You deserve it just as much as anybody else. Yeah. Your natural state is of divine nourishment and love nobody's exempt no i need to tell that remind my mum of that i really remind my mum of that and remind the bits of yourself that resonate with your mum and that can't see your mum in that state i know i know i love elizabeth gilbert she's bloody amazing isn't she just delicious she's the nuts she's the actual i'm gonna say she's the tits (laughs) she is the tits she's rather good she's amazing i love her So Elizabeth Gilbert, if you're listening, you are both the nuts and the tits and we love you. 
You're amazing. Amazing. I just want to talk about these cards that we draw mm. because um, before we do our podcast every time, we pull out cards from Oracle decks just to, I don't know, just to as part of opening up and as uh, to mark the occasion and perhaps give us some inspiration. And wow, every time we pull out cards, they are always so pertinent and so mm. like deeply profound. And the ones that we pulled out today, I mean, I'm feeling quite overwhelmed and emotional about them because they're really talking about, well, the, the one that I just picked out now is the tree of life. And it's about grounding roots into the earth and allowing your branches to expand into the sky. And like the roots are representative of your subconscious, which is all the stuff that we're talking about. The trauma is all in your subconscious. And so when your roots are strong, you can weather any storm. And that's the idea behind this card. And it's like, wow. So when we do the, when we do take that time to work on our roots and our subconscious and and repair, I don't know if that's the right word, but grow that aspect of ourselves to the earth and really connect in with our bodies, which is the same thing, you know, earthing yourself, then it just increases your capacity to be able to face what's going on out in the world from a different place. Yeah. And you're strong and flexible and beautiful like a tree. Yeah. And the one I pulled was about peace and being compassionate. And we just had a conversation or we're just having a conversation about how, as we talked about trauma in the body in the last episode, we didn't talk very much about spirit and spirituality and how we're more than just the body, but we have to be in touch. We perceive our existence through the body, but we're more than just the body. We're divine fucking love in and out <laughs> yeah see how i make it better by swearing we're de- we are divine love in and out and we need to breathe and connect with our heart take breath into our body and connect with the biggerness of everything that we're part of because it's really easy when you have trauma in your system to think that you don't belong to anything and you aren't part of anything but you are and if you can't see it it's just that you're not seeing it it's right there with its arms around you so on that note, this one's dedicated to compassion yeah. and rootedness. Yes. So on that note, come on, let's do this. So before we start, I just want to sort of um, talk to you about the work that you do, Jude, because you know we talk a little bit about being actors, and but but you also have a really amazing wealth of knowledge around embodiment and trauma in the body. So can you share a little mm. bit about what work you've done? What what? Well, interesting. So. Do you mean the work that I do as a practitioner, the work that I've done with my own body and my Both. own... Both. So, yeah. I've done a lots of different forms of therapy, including some with a therapist who swore to me that I was definitely being raped until I was at least 18, which I don't agree with at all. But I've also done work with a very compassionate woman who was basically reparenting me as a mother through the work that I did with her. And that was talking therapy. She was a humani- humanist psychotherapist what does that mean not quite sure but she would share some of her own stories as examples which many therapists don't but she would also she would always preempt it with a asking for permission and she'd say i have a story that i think might resonate would you like to hear it and she would keep it brief but she would say and this is what i learned from that and this is my so she was explicit and she said i don't take notes and i don't you know i don't take insurance because insurance requires me to take notes so if you want it, you pay for it because, you know, I'm not I'm not going to compromise my work with you by writing notes about you, <laughs> which I really liked. And I've done some cognitive cognitive behavioural therapy and some EMDR, which is the 
eye movement. Uh, basically, you're moving your eyes from one side of the brain, from one side of your head to the other, which moves your brain synapses from one side to the other, which connects your two brain hemispheres because in trauma they're separated and the left one is shut down if you're in a flashback the left side the rational cognitive side of your brain is shut down yeah and so you can't make rational decisions and the right side is lit up and working so emdr takes you back into a traumatic experience and helps you relive it in a with a better outcome yeah so for example a traumatic experience with a abusive father in mind the therapist came into the room in the in the imagination with the with the emdr happening with the eye movement happening and rem- was there and and stopped the situation happening now i'm not sure in my world whether that's what i would do because again it's not giving agency to the part of you that needs to take agency it's yeah another person come in but there you go and more recently i've done somatic experiencing which is immense it's an incredible modality invented yeah. by peter levine and we i will talk about him a bit more in more detail i'll go into a more bigger description about somatic experiencing a little bit later on yeah. in the podcast but it, it's um it's about teaching your body to have it's about getting you back in touch with your body and teaching your body to have uh, to complete escape mechanisms that it didn't manage to complete okay and to, ha- and to find sensation in the body um, and to learn to reteach the body to separate certain experiences from beliefs. So if I believe that every time anybody touches me sexually, it's frightening, I need to uncouple the belief, the the the, the feeling of sexual touch and fear. I need to take them separately and notice where they are separately, and so that they're not always locked together. Because otherwise, wow. yeah, it's really interesting, and it combines. Top down, which is talking, with bottom up, which is experiencing in the body without needing to know what's happening, and it combines those those two. Certainly, with the person I did it with, yeah, to to help you be more grounded in and open in the world, more rooted with your branches growing out. Exactly. Bloody hell, that's amazing. Yeah, it's really good and really really good practitioner who I mentioned in the last one. I mentioned again, Elise Parsons. She's fucking brilliant, and I think she's working online now. So. Yeah. Anywhere in the world. So so she practices Peter Levine's method- methodology. Yes, somatic experiences in, was designed by Peter Levine. Right. Based on observations, first of all, that he made of, of what was happening with, with clients. And he tells a story of a client who was agoraphobic and terrified and in lots of physical body pain and everybody, nobody could work with her and so he was finally sent with her for relaxation. And he got her into relaxation and she went into panic because he was, this was in his early years, he was telling her to relax and he was taking her into a state where she had to relax, which was absolutely terrifying for her. And we'll find out why any second now. And so then he managed to calm her down and he, was, he saw her heart rate going down and her physiology changing and her heart rate was dropping because he got her to calm and her heart, heart rate continued to drop and continued to drop and she was almost not breathing and she was then back into terror because she was saying I'm dying because she'd gone from hyper arousal of her sympathetic nervous system which is fight and fight and flight <laughs> going to move yeah and then he'd taken her down and she, instead of being in any happy medium she'd gone right into catatonia collapse complete the body yeah. shuts down it's almost not alive like like in hibernation yeah and at that point, in his mind's eye, he sees a tiger 
and he says to her, there's a tiger, run from it. And she, in her state, start her legs start to move and she is running. I'm getting a bit emotional, but she's running away from this tiger, which is an imagination. And when they came out of the, um, the process, it's funny because I wasn't crying when I listened to this earlier. <laughs> I know I am. She came out of the process. She said she was looking at herself. She's four years old. She's being held down by a group of masked people who are doctors helping her because she's having her ether mask put on because she's going to have a tonsillectomy. And she's frightened and she's four, year old, four years old and her parents aren't there because she's in the theatre. And there are looming, four looming figures holding her down physically and putting a mask over until she goes into catatonia. Fuck me. And this is, she didn't remember it, she didn't know about it, she was four years old and it was a traumatic memory which has a tendency to disappear and because it's hard, too hard to deal with it will be under the radar of conscious awareness. So having seen that, and then, so what his therapy is based on is teaching the body to experience, like we were talking about the dogs in the last yeah. podcast, the dogs who were shocked continuously learnt that they couldn't escape, so there was no point in trying. So the body that was held down and couldn't escape learns that danger is outside, but there's nothing you can do about it, so you just give up. So she was, so the whole of somatic experiencing and TRE, which is traumatic release therapy, is exercises is to teach the body, like we taught the, like they taught the yeah. dogs to come out of the cages, teach the body to complete the release and the, the escape mechanism that was thwarted in the traumatic experience. So there was a boy who was... It might have been a birth experience or it might have been a, an accidental experience where the boy, the little boy, wasn't able to protect himself. Yeah. And basically the little boy naturally started to bring his arms up and because that's frightening for a parent, they were holding his arms, he was, they were catching him down and, and Peter Levine says, no, let him finish, let him do that. So he does the movements that he wasn't able to do in the traumatic experience and then the bad behaviour goes away because he's not frightened anymore and he's had, the body has had an experience, the mind doesn't need to yeah. necessarily. Wow, that's really fascinating. It reminds me of, um, I once saw Bruce Parry being interviewed about, mm. he's worked a lot with ayahuasca yeah. and psychedelics and I think we should go go into actually looking talking about some of that stuff because mm. there's so much research now and so much um, tests and and has been done you know analysing the impact of psychedelics, psilocybin, mushrooms yeah. on trauma and healing mental health problems. So I think that's something we should perhaps talk about at some point. But Bruce Parry was saying that one time he drank ayahuasca and he relived his birthing experience and. When he was born, he didn't realise, but he had the cord wrapped around his neck. Ah. And in this death and rebirth experience that he had with the ayahuasca, he said he sort of relived that moment and managed to kind of shift through the, the experience of it. And he said afterwards, like, I can't remember what impact it had, but it was either something to do with physically or just the way that he... He said he felt like he always had a bit of a chip on his shoulder or like something to... It's something to do with his neck. I can't quite remember, but it was something to do with shoulders and neck. I sort of seem to remember chip on shoulder sort of thing. And he just said it, it, it just cured him of that of that feeling, but he was never aware that he had that feeling until he got rid of it. Wow. So it's under the level of consciousness. So it's under the level of consciousness. And that's all this subconscious stuff is, you know, when I do the Melanie Tony Revens quantum freedom healing, which is the way I've addressed trauma, although thinking about it now, I have addressed it in other ways without really realising that's what I was doing. But half the time you've got this stuff going on and it's not until you investigate it that you even realise that you've got it and that you 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 unremember it or you re-remember it yeah 
like you were just describing about the woman with her experience as a child on the on the operating thing, you know, and it's yeah. And this is the bottom up is she didn't remember it and then process it consciously. Her body remembered it, yeah. and her body showed her what she needed to do, and then the memory, the explanatory memory, which was helpful, turned up. But the body remembered it first. The body keeps the score. Bethel van der Kolk. The body holds the memory of things that our conscious mind can't. And John Sarno, the back healing yeah. back man, would go even further and say, all back pain and all unexplained physical pain, when you've had a medical exploration, you've had all your scans, there's, no, there's nothing broken, there's nothing there, it's not cancer, it's not this, you've got unexplained chronic body pain, is, he would say anger. But if not anger, then intense emotion that you're just not willing to go to. And anger can be... I mean, I'm terrified of anger, especially my own. I'm pretty frightened of it. And if you're not willing to go there, then it will stay as pain. And in a way, if I see it as that choice, oh, at some point I'm going to be ready to... Oh, I don't want this pain anymore. And it's, it, you know, it's a choice to believe that because he says he's been discredited by so many people, but he's also seen huge amounts of success. Well, he's had... Inc- imp- I've I known two people that have read the book by John Sarno who have been cured of their back pain. Maybe. Actually, I, I, I know a person too and I've heard other, you know, mm. um, Annie Grace who wrote the, This Naked Mind was inspired to write her book about alcohol based after reading the John Sarno book because she was like, you know, the beliefs that we hold about things are what keeps us... And it puts us into cognitive dissonance as well. Like half the time it's like we've got two different thoughts about something that don't that don't and can't match a paradox and your body and your mind will choose to believe the one which is most convenient for it or the one which is the easiest truth to handle and or the one that's most ingrained even if it's not yes yeah yeah yeah. or the one that's most ingrained and so when you start to unpick this stuff that's in your subconscious and really analyze these beliefs that we hold then that's the key to setting yourself free and speaking of keys to setting yourself free you've just given me um an epiphany thank you very much So when I'm listening to the trauma stuff, the belief that it's a long road and it's a difficult path and it will take courage makes it harder, not easier. And the belief that there is solace in every breath if I want it and if I remember. And the belief that I'm actually, I'm okay in this moment. I'm okay. It's fine. I'm actually okay. Yeah. And I can do my work from that place. From a resourced and accepting place if I do my trauma healing work from the place of I'm damaged and I need to get better it makes it hurt more if I do my work from the place of I'm complete exactly as I should be right in this moment and I could be living in an even, even more exciting place it sounds like nothing and language is language is itsy like that it sounds like nothing but it's so powerful it is so powerful and this is why i know i'm always banging on about melanie tonya evans and holly whitaker but they are two really amazing women who are speaking this new truth which is actually you can recover from this stuff you can recover and it doesn't have to take you your whole life to recover from it when you have the right resources and the right not the right but when you find the resources that work for you yes and you can shift your mindset from this is a real massive mountain i have to overclimb to actually this is doable and that's why i just love their messages which has it doesn't have to take you millions of years to recover from narcissistic abuse you don't have to dedicate your whole life to to being labeling yourself an alcoholic and thinking that you can never be cured of this pattern that you've had you absolutely can yeah you absolutely can and it's 
that's you know why we're making this podcast is to share this narrative mm. this new well it's not new but it's just you know it's a it's a different way of looking at it which gives me hope yeah and me too yeah and I've recently done some work with an amazing friend who's also an incredible therapist called Amanda Garcia. She's in Mexico and she works internationally now because of COVID. Well done. (laughs) Thanks, COVID. She's amazing. And she does similar work to me, but I can't do that work on myself in that she talks to the part of you where the belief sits in your body. Her background is in osteopathy and craniosacral. Okay. Mine is in massage and some kind of other healing modalities. But she talks to that part of you. And she's in, if you're in person, she'd, she'd, have a, she'd do some touch, um, an energetic release. But in, at distance, she's just talking. She gets you to talk to that part and to sense it and find out where it is and really connect with it and be in the body with it. And similarly, when I work on, a, on somebody's body, God, it's so much easier than talking sometimes. Because <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go into any stories and we just work and we find the places and, we, and the release that happens, happens. And we do a little bit of talking to encourage and to get into a lovely state or into a safe feeling state rather than lovely. That's not very descriptive. Mm. A state where you feel resourceful enough to allow intense emotions to arise and pass through you without feeling that they are you. Yeah. And... There are so many different ways, and what you said, find the one that will find one, not the one. Find one or many that work for you, and every little bit that happens, think of it like a box of chocolates, not like a bloody building a brick wall. <laughs> yeah, because when I think back now, it's like I, th- I think oh, it's the Melanie Tony Robbins work that has um, that has shifted my trauma. But when I think back now over my life, there's loads of things that I've dipped in and out of that, in their own way, have played their part in bringing me to the place that I am now. Mm. And if I'd have come across some of this work earlier on, it wouldn't might not have resonated with me because I wouldn't have the capacity to get it in that in that in that younger state. Yeah. And so everything that you're doing, and it's just worth exploring. So let's explore. Let's explore. So did you complete sharing with us about the work that you do? I think so. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I do, I've got a background of massage and body work, energetic work, coaching, NLP and listening. Okay. And space holding in um, quite intense spaces and group work. So a combination of that stuff always coming back to the body and what's happening and what I find honestly speaking is that I'm much more in touch with my own body and its sensations and I'm guided by my body when I'm working with another body and when I'm not in the process of working with another body I have to consciously remember to be in touch with my own body because it's not a natural thing for me yeah more me too it's not so let's talk about some of the things you know we're not going to cover every single form of trauma work that you could do but let's talk about some of those well i'd love to talk about somatic experience yeah and one of the reasons is that it's got some really interesting terminology that's worth exploring okay so somatic experiencing means somatic is in the physio in the, in the body in the physical body yeah and experiencing is ex- having experiences in your physical body that are healing and that's not that's my description that's not an official naming of it just so you know i'm pointing at the mic as if the mic was judging me <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> Um, one of the concepts in there that I found really incredible, first of all, you start by building resources, making sure that you know what your body feels like in a resourceful state. This yeah. is very similar with NLP. You do, you anchor a resourceful state first, because if you're going to go into intense states, you want to be able to have an existing, you want to have to generate a positive state from a negative state. But if you've already experienced a positive state, you can then 
dip into an intense state and come out. Okay. Or come home to a resourceful state. Or in NLP, you would stack resourceful states so you have a really strong one, and then you would go into a, 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 a you know, out of 10, you might have a, a 10 out of 10 strong state, and you dip into a 2 out of 10 negative state, and then you could come back more easily. You, okay. wouldn't, you wouldn't take a 2 out of 10 positive state and then leap into a 10 out of 10 negative state. Yeah. And in somatic res- experiencing, they call that the two, two things. One is titration. Okay. What, what does that mean? Titration, right. Best way of explaining it for me is, you know when you get a, a lovely new bottle of, I love soda water. Big yeah. fat bubbles. I like the big fat bubbles in soda water. If you've just come home from the supermarket and you pap it down on the table and you take the lid off, you get a face full, don't you? Yeah. Whoosh, and it goes, Shh, and then it blows up in your face. Yeah. Perfect. You don't want that in trauma because that's just going to re-traumatise. Yeah. So you don't want to take somebody into... So I know that you've got trauma. Sit down. Let's dive straight in. Let's get into it. Let's get into the deep stuff. Because then the system is so overloaded. And somebody's system, when they're traumatised, is overloadable very quickly. Yeah. Very sensitive. So instead of that, you, just like when you're a pot bottle, you open it a bit and then you close it. And you open it a little bit and let a bit more gas out. And it bubbles up inside, but only a little bit comes out. Oh. And then you close it. And then you gently do it until... You can move the bottle about and there's no explosion. And you do that with every traumatic experience so that you can learn to deal with situations and you can learn what resources, and how your body feels when you've learned to deal with that so that you're not fearing an explosion every time you go out into the world. You're... Oh, that's amazing. It's good, isn't it? That really is good. I think that's that would be useful for somebody like my mum. Yeah. Who, who finds it very difficult to sit with with anything inside of her she mm. finds it I know that at one point she was trying EFT oh does and um, or I think another time she tried to do hypnotherapy and like when she was going into it like she completely freaked the fuck out and said so she couldn't do it it was just too overwhelming for her and overloading her system with too much well, this is the thing if you've been traumatised one of the things that happens is that you need to be in control of your environment because you need safety and it's danger and safety all comes from the outside rather than from the inside so if you're trying to control your safety, I mean, it's an impossible task to yeah. control the take safety from outside, but that's what you need to do. So if your mum is, or anybody is, is trying to control the safety by being in control of their environment and what's around them, then going into something like hypnotherapy or ayahuasca or something that takes the control away is going to be terrifying. Yeah. So it's, you know, rather than going for deep hypnotherapy, what about a tiny bit of gentle back and forth go into it come back out to a safe place go and that's pendulation so you go into resourceful state first then dip in with the knowledge that you're going to swing back to the resourceful so you're swinging forward into the unresourceful back so this is a way of being in a tense situation or a situation you want to deal with and then coming back out and you just know that it's going back and forth wow so again this is all so this is somatic Peter experiencing. Levine. Yeah, this is all within somatic experiences. When I started doing somatic experiencing as a client, immediately I was like, oh my God, this is like eating a meal, I need to study it. And I just had to catch myself and thought, if you're, what you're doing is coming out of your body and into your head and wanting to understand this intellectually rather than feel the effects of it because that's still dangerous. And your mind is tricksy as fuck. I speak for my own mind. My mind is tricksy as fuck. My mind will tell me, I know best for you. You're clever, you can do this. 
you need to be helping the world by doing this. And actually, you need to be helping the world by doing your own work. That is so true. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you we haven't quite finished. There's no way of finishing somatic experiencing, but look it up. Peter Levine, somatic experiencing, waking the tiger in an unspoken voice. The subtitle of that one is how trauma, how to release trauma in the body, or how trauma is released from the body. And are these books or these films? Are books. Or? These are books, and you can get most of them on audiobook as well. Although you always have to listen to a sample if you're me, because sometimes somebody's voice can tip the balance. <laughs> Oh, don't, I've narrated an audiobook once and uh, yeah, it's an interesting process. Interesting process and it's all fine, but if if somebody's voice is more traumatising than the content, then it's not worth it. Then it's not worth it. So you were mentioning EFT. Yeah, so that's the emotional free, emotional freedom technique. Yeah. And that's tapping. Yeah. Is that tapping? Yeah. So I've never actually tried this. On, on uh, the Holly's course, she talks a lot about tapping as a way of releasing trauma because she, she does go into trauma a little bit as part of the as part of the sort of eight week modules mm. that you do um and I actually wanted I did actually write to her but I don't know if she ever got the message about you know looking at Mel's work on trauma because for me that that does work really well but um my daughter's been working with tapping and at school because because of um the experience that we had a couple of years ago where I was assaulted you know she was indirectly involved in that experience and was traumatized by it yeah. and her counselor at school or her you know the, the person that she's working with at school has really me- recommended this to her and she seems to quite like it mm. and my mum does it and she talks about it a lot because she wants me to do it and I keep saying to her mum the more you talk to me about it the less I want to do it <laughs> but that's just me being a bit teenage but basically it's you tap on different parts of your face and your chest, and they some of them line up with meridians, don't they? Yeah, actually, my mum, my mum's been doing it as well. And then, and you at the same time, you say, even though I'm feeling whatever you're feeling now, I fully love and accept myself is the one that my mum tells me about. Yeah. So, and then you repeat all of that. And what was it that Willow said about? Um... Well, I think she was saying the reason it works is because while you're tapping and touching yourself, you're not in your mind anymore yeah. you're sort of you're doing something else and so it takes yourself out of the an- anxious state and brings you into connection with your body which yeah. is I guess what all this stuff is about but I don't know enough about it to say that with much clarity well all of this I mean obviously it will all be in the footer it'll all be written there for you to get with lovely links there's another one I'm stroking my arms as we speak another one I remember from Peter Levine um, he's written a book about healing from sexual trauma yeah. And one of the things he says is to find a really neutral piece of your body like your forearm. And m- people with sexual trauma often don't recognise their own body as theirs. So what you're doing is you're touching with one hand and you're, you're saying, this is my body, this is my body, I can feel my body. And you're describing what's happening, what you can feel. Right. And you're saying, this is my body. And even when I do that on my own arm, this arm's a bit like, what's going on here then? I can feel... Picking the skin, but just gently touching the body and soothing strokes feels a little bit... Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. So it's it's a way of gently, softly, soothingly learning to touch your own body as though you were your own infant and you're soothing it first before you think about anything sexual. Just soothing, letting, relearning, teaching the body that touch is okay. Yeah. And, you know, you've mentioned that you, you pick your skin sometimes. How mm. interesting is that, that you can feel that that you don't feel oh you can't connect in with the gentle feelings that's interesting and i noticed that as you speak there i've completely stopped breathing <laughs> that's funny stopped breathing while you spoke 
Ah, wow. So we talked about lots of things today. What else? What other therapeutic um, avenues? You talked about the quantum. Yes, well, the quantum freedom healing is the stuff that you do as part of the narcissistic recovery program, but you can apply that method to pretty much anything. So, and I used it with alcohol recovery as well. And, and I've been using it more consciously on another course that Mel does, which is the self-empowered course, where it's just taking the idea that, you know, what's in your subconscious, it doesn't have to, you know, you can actually work with so many beliefs that we have that are just holding you back in your life. It doesn't have to have been born out of a narcissistic experience. And um, and so the way that that works is it, it lines up with that thing of, you know, where in your, so you go into a, right, the most important thing to say is it works in theta brainwave. So between the ages of naught to seven, children are in something called theta brainwave as opposed to what you become as an adult, which is alpha and beta, I think. There's, there's different levels of it. But that's when you're being programmed. That's when your subconscious is picking up all the cues and recognising the world around it and learning how to relate to it and how to navigate yourself within the world. So her thing, and I think it comes from like Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lyons who also talk about, um, well, Bruce Lyons talks a lot about epigenetics and Joe Dispenza is a lot about you working with your subconscious. And it's that thing of in theta brainwave, you, you can't unpick stuff from your subconscious whilst you're in cognitive, you know, fully, you know, you have to put yourself in the same brain state that you're in when you received this programming so first of all you go into a meditative state theta brainwave and then you access the energy in your body or the trapped energy in your body and you can ask yourself what is this about it doesn't actually matter what it's about if you can't sort of get anything coming through and you ask it how old is this is this is this you know something that i can uh is it something from this lifetime or is it something that i'm epigenetically or ancestrally carrying and then you just work with that energy and you literally spiral it. It's, a lot of it's through visualisation. You, you spiral it out of your head and you give it out the top of your head. But then you draw in source light energy to replace where that block was. So you take, essentially you're spiralling something out and you're bringing something different in. Yeah. Which is source light energy. And there's three different parts to that. There's a spiralling sensation and then you imagine yourself as a container and you then remove whatever that blockage is, like in your mind's eye. And then you meet your inner child and you pick it up and you fill that child up with it as well, with love and compassion. And then you integrate that. And it doesn't just have to be yourself as a child. It can be, um, you know, anyone else that shows up in that moment. I mean, this is all, it's a spiritual thing, I guess. But you don't have to be spiritual to do it. You know, you can just do the process and trust but i know some people will find that difficult but it's it's um it really bloody does work yeah and i can't even describe to you how it works but i know that the more i do it and the more connection i get with it i mean i'm literally feeling energy moving in my body when i'm doing it i get goosebumps i'm tingling and i can feel that energy moving i'm, I'm actually getting it now just talking about it mm. it's extraordinary how it works but it really does well the power of your mind is in- intense and incredible mm. And if you want to go all scientific and do CBT and EMDR, that's all based on science. But it's exactly the same. You basically, it's not exactly the same, but you're basically shifting with the power of your imagination, the power of your mind. You're shifting energies and blockages within yourself. You're just using different terminology to make it happen. Yeah. That's probably you could probably take that apart and burn it. What I've just said. But in my opinion, there's a lot of similarities, and it's however you need to package it yeah. in order to make the medicine work. And shamanic traditions would say very similarly, when you, if you remove something, nature abhors a vacuum. And so you need to make sure that you filled it up with something that you want there, not with something that you don't want there. So you need to make sure that when you do energetic work, you finish by nourishing and filling back up with, with 
positivity and with with um, beneficial mm. energies. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I know. And yoga as well is a really good practical exercise that you can do that also really gets you in touch with your body. Yeah. And um, I noticed, I mean, I took up a pretty um, disciplined practice of yoga about maybe about seven or eight years ago. As I was going into my first stage of, you know, I was four years sober before I went back to drinking this more recent time. And it was around then after my friendship disappeared with my, mm. you know, with my friend. And I, that was one of the things that I reached out to in that moment. And it did make a difference. And it certainly helped me to gain sobriety. What did you like about it? I think it's that thing of, you know, being in a position, um, you know, holding a position and then like relaxing and breathing into the tension within it mm. and noticing where it feels tight in my body, where it's where it feels relaxed, just becoming more in tune with my body, which was quite an alien thing to me, which is, you know, considering I'm a, I've done dancing my whole life, I think just, yeah, mindlessly dancing and also noticing how much my brain wants to control what's happening yeah and like there'd be occasionally i do a yoga class and i'd come out at the end and i'd be like bloody hell i didn't think of anything then for yeah. an hour i did not think of a single thing i was just totally immersed in that experience and not analyzing it thinking about anything not thinking about any problems not doing my to-do list just in the moment and that felt so fucking liberating yeah to have been given a break from myself for an hour yeah and so i really really liked that isn't it interesting how you say, I've given a break from myself, and in fact you got back in touch with yourself and given a break from your wearing mind, which tells you that it is yourself, but it isn't the whole of yourself, is it? Uh, yeah, it sure isn't. <sighs> isn't it interesting that in yoga then, what you described is that you hold a position and it might be comfortable or uncomfortable, but you learn to use your breath and you breathe through it and you experience that position. Yeah. It may even involve pain to up to a point, or that mind thing that says, oh, this is so awful, I've got to come out, I can't keep doing this. But actually, you can. You can. If you apply that to emotions. Oh, yeah. I can stand this emotion. I can witness this fear or this pain or this anger and just witness it. Yeah, and and get to that edge. And, I mean, that's when I think about, you know, again, recovering from alcohol. Like, what the alcohol was doing was taking, not giving me the opportunity to ever reach my edges, because the craving is like, I'm, I, there's an edge coming. I don't want to go there. I'm just going to drink instead. You don't realise you're doing that. But when I when you take that away, I mean, to me, that's what cravings are. It's like, there's something coming up in me that I don't want to look at. So I'm going to do something to distract myself. I'm going to eat something. I'm going to go on Facebook. I'm going to do whatever, whatever it takes to not go there. And then when you start to practically work with your edge, like you do in yoga, that's what I mean. Like these things, they, they just happen as they're meant to, because if I hadn't, been able to face that on a yoga mat I might not have been able to then recognize that that's a part of of recovery like when you take everything away you take the distractions and the numbing stuff out you then have to get to your edge and know that it's okay to to be there because that's the point where you break through and you evolve into into a higher state of or into a different state of being yeah and two things one that's where good parenting or good reparenting allows maturity because you're instead of being the child energy inside of you going I can't bear this edge I've got to do something mommy kind of help me something external help me not have this feeling which is what a child would naturally do fall over my knee hurts you go to mommy she makes it better you're learning to reparent yourself and you're learning to say well I can do hard things I can sit with this and be with it yeah interesting Mm. it's so if you think about how things are shifting because 
I don't know, when I was growing up, it was always that thing of like, you know, if you were upset about something, it's like, oh, forget about it. Don't waste your time. Don't dwell on that. Let's do something different. Let's, you know, and we just use distraction. I mean, I used to do it with my own kids. Like, they were upset. I used to give them a biscuit. And now I just think, what the hell is that teaching them? That when you're upset, eat some shit, sh- eat some shit food, <laughs> basically. But again, we until we teach ourselves something different, we teach what we learned, yeah. don't we? Yeah, and that's what everyone does. And also, the society that we live in really promotes that way of dealing with your problems. You know, or you'll only be happy when you've got that new pair of jeans, or when you've got that car, then you'll be happy, or when that new job happens, or when you get that relationship, and all these things that are externally that we think are externally validating us. And that this is, we we live in a society that really wants us to be codependent mm. on shit because then that makes us good little consumers. It's so who want to buy though, a load isn't of it? shit. <laughs> so compelling. I still feel it in myself every day. Me too. It'll be okay when I've been to the shop and bought. Oh, I don't even know what I want. What, uh, there isn't anything that I want, but I still feel like I need to go to the supermarket and get something. <laughs> it's amazing. It's one of the most boring addictions you could possibly have. <laughs> So what you were saying about yoga also made me think about something we may have mentioned we may not have done, about approaching, we mentioned it a little bit in the last one, approaching trauma from another angle. So you work with yoga because you want to and because you want to have a practice and because it's good training and it's good physical movement. Moving the body makes a huge difference. But you're not doing trauma yoga. No. That, that, we're back to laughter yoga. You're not doing trauma yoga you're doing yoga because you want to. You're not doing dancing to heal your trauma. Although all of these are valid if you want to, but in a way, when you make that the point, when you make the trauma the point in everything that you do, it takes away. So in a way, you need to sometimes, especially people who spend a lot of time in their heads, which is me. And me. If you can distract your mind, like you were saying with yoga, if you can distract it from solving the problem of trauma <laughs> yeah. and take it to enjoying the feeling of yoga, then you might be doing... I don't say that replaces any trauma work you might want to do, but what an, an amazing compliment yeah. to any trauma work is to do something that you love so I'm having read the back book, I'm going to go back and play tennis as soon as I can. Because I love tennis and I thought I couldn't do it because my back was too bad. And because it made my back hurt. Now I don't know why it makes my back hurt, but I fucking love it. And if I can, I'm going to do it again. Yes, because so joy and creating opportunities for joy and celebration are also really healing. Yes, and, and if I go into playing tennis thinking it's going to make my back hurt but I'm going to do it anyway then it might make my back hurt if I go into it thinking I know now that if it makes my back hurt it's actually about something else so it's just an opportunity to inquire about what that other thing is I can probably really enjoy my game of tennis and there is nothing in the world Sammy (laughs) like hitting a ball down the line even if it only happens once every 500 strokes when you hit that ball down the line and it goes like that and your whole body's in it this smooth flow oh my god it feels good yeah ah uh, yeah i get it i've never played tennis but there's other things that give me yeah what gives you because you talked about dancing what else oh, gives i really you love dancing i'm quite like a bit of temping bowling <laughs> do you know what i mean like you sort of whack it i mean i'm shit most of the time but every now and again i'll do an absolute stonker yes. And I'm like doing a little dance, and I'm giving it large. Yeah, because <laughs> I just can't believe I've hit the I've hit the pins. Yeah, but, but I get amazing. that real satisfaction from yes. it, and the whole thing of like the walk up, the little run up, and the little the little hoppity jig that you do when you when you throw that ball down. 
And again, the flow. there's the ritual. Yeah. And so here's another thing which is immensely... So the, we started this podcast and we called this one Working with Trauma in the Body, but actually it's partly just about how do you how do you find wonderful things to do that make your trauma feel like less the most dominant thing in your whole of your life and more like a little part of your life that you can manage? How do you tip that balance so that there's a great big vat of other things and there may be some trauma stuff to when you when you're ready to deal with it and one of them is you know what do you love what do you love maybe you could make a shit painting yeah i don't mean a painting with shit although if that's your thing (laughs) don't hold back (laughs) but maybe you could just make a painting for the pleasure of getting paint between your fingers and drawing something and maybe you could be as childlike as you like and when you hear a voice saying, you're not fucking Picasso, I'm just having a play. Yeah. You know, what do you love to do that you don't allow yourself? What do you love to do that you don't allow yourself to do? Um, there's not a lot that I don't allow myself to do. I mean, I pretty much do the stuff that I want. I think half the time it's like being exposed to things that you didn't even know that you would enjoy. Ooh. So I'm a, I'm a curious person anyway. I like to put myself in weird and wonderful situations um, really I'm a bit of a thrill seeker, I guess. So I have actually, you know, that's one of my things. And that's probably one of the things that sometimes gets me into trouble because I'm chasing a certain, I'm chasing a dopamine hit, essentially. Yeah, there goes my addictive. (laughs) Well, there you go. And we've talked about this before. We will spend longer on it in another episode. But the point being that when your system has got used to shutting down a normal life or coping, got some possibly dysfunctional coping strategies in normal life and you've had drama and high adrenaline experiences and you know attacks and yeah then that's when your body feels alive and so you put yourself in risk situations you put yourself in thrill-seeking situations well, that's like doing stand-up comedy we've both done stand-up Ooh. comedy and it's the scariest fucking thing i've ever done and and i i look back now and i'm like well why was i doing that well i was doing it because the thrill that it gave yeah. me and There's the fear there. that it brought up in me and being able to kind of meet that fear and still do it felt like a huge achievement. Yes. And the, the the high afterwards was better than any drug I've ever taken. I mean, it was immense when it was successful. Not when I died on my arse. That was absolutely hideous. But when I was, you know, when it landed and everyone was laughing and I was just like, oh my God, this feels amazing. Oh, I'd love to see. But as an actor, there. you've got that you've got that repeated experience because every time you go into a new piece, you've got that that journey of fuck me, is this going to be any good? Am I going to be any good? Is the piece going to be any good? And then, Can you know, first it? night, the the adrenaline and the fear is immense, but afterwards, you just you feel amazing. Yeah, as long as it's gone well. So it's that chase, and and now when I remember back to that the film that I was mentioning, Pleasure Unwoven, which is about dopamine and how that affects your brain and then you want to repeat cycles. And again, cravings is the same sort of thing. It's like your body wants that peptide hit of the same emotion back. So it will recreate situations either for real or in your imagination that are keeping that stuff going. Yeah. You said, as long as it's gone well, I would argue that although when it goes well, it feels good, when it goes badly, you're still getting the adrenaline hit. Yeah. I've been on stage and I've been I've been booed off stage. <laughs> I've been on stage where the whole audience, every time I said anything, would just go, ugh. The really? whole audience. I went on after Brendan Burns. After. After Brendan Burns. As the headliner. And I'd been doing stand-up for six months. How come? What happened there? The guy who ran the club night, I bumped into him, um, said, I've 
he phoned me up or he emailed me and said, I've got a night coming up and I've got loads of, he did, loads of really similar people, loads of men, and I need a woman with a completely different style. Because when I was doing stand-up, it was like, oh no, we've already got a woman on the bill. So basically, he had three men on the bill. He told me their names, but I was so new to stand-up. I'd heard of Brendan Burns, but I was getting him mixed up with Ed Byrne in my head. Brendan Burns, if anybody doesn't know, is like a Tasmanian fucking devil. Yeah, I've seen him live a few High times. High energy. My friend nearly got into a fight with him. I'm not surprised. He, he was acting out his dramas. He would say so himself. Yeah. And he was alcoholic for a while, and he came through that, and he's doing different things I used things to find now. him really attractive. Well, there, there you, you go. go. That's okay. <laughs> that says it all. So, he was headlining... But he was beginning, normally you have the headliner at the end, but he was starting the gig because he was headlining a better paid, bigger gig over the other side of town later on in the night. So he went on first and everybody had come to see him. So basically what this man was asking for was a sacrificial lamb. Oh! (laughs) And I asked a few of my comedy friends whether they would do it because I considered that they were better than me and they said no. And they didn't say, fuck no, I wouldn't do that to myself. They said no. And I was surprised, but I didn't understand why. And I said, I could do it. So I went on with my terrible routine. I'm not even going to say what it is. <laughs> it was a routine that I actually really meant, but it wasn't very kind and it wasn't very nice. And it was it was early stand-up, you know? Yeah. It's clumsy. It's like expecting to be able to play a fucking Bach suite on the cello after three weeks. I, it's early stand-up. You've got to make your mistakes. So I went on after that, after Brendan Burns. And literally everybody just was doing that. And there's this one woman at the back who kept going, get off. Really? Yeah. And at one point, well, well, after about three or four times, I said, madam, there's nothing I'd like more, but I've promised to do 10 minutes. So we're all in this together kind of thing. (laughs) I always say, I said strap in, but I didn't say strap in. That was something that I wish I'd said, strap in. (laughs) But I didn't say that. I said something like, I promised to do 10 minutes. So it's a bit longer to go. And then, I did a couple of minutes more. That's was... such a polite response to a heckle. <laughs> well, they were still like, Ugh. and I did a, a couple of minutes more and I was building to what, and I just said, do you know what? I'm going to stop now because I think if I do this, somebody will come and get me off the stage. And that's when they applauded. Oh. And they, and, and, and I actually thought, well, it's quite sweet of them to applaud at all. And they weren't, they, as heckles go, it felt like the worst thing in the world, but what an adrenaline rush. Yeah. Felt like the worst thing in the world. I came off stage, I couldn't get out because of where I'd gone. <laughs> so I had to sit through the next one. I was weeping. I was trying to get my coat. I couldn't get past people to get my coat. I was weeping. <laughs> when I got off the stage, the guy who'd booked me came on. He was the compare and he said, Oh my God, she was so shit. She made me look good. Which is what you should never do as a compare. As a compare, your job is to take the hit and to move things on and to make the energy positive again, not to slate somebody who's just murdered themselves. Oh, what a twat. What a twat. But then I sat there, yeah, and weeping. And I've really died out on that story, I have to say. <laughs> well, okay, can I tell you my stand-up? Yes! Where I died on my ass story? Yeah. So when I got pregnant for the first time with my little boy, I was like, okay, I had a really amazing acting job that I was about to do, which then got taken away because I was going to be pregnant so I couldn't do it it's devastated um so I was like okay I've always wanted to do stand-up I need to create my own opportunities now so I'm going to do it so I did this routine about being preggers and um I entered for some reason I entered this channel 4 competition called so you think you're funny and I entered that and I went when I was like really quite heavily pregnant uh, went into this routine 
it went down a storm. Like I, I couldn't have imagined it going better. And I was like, that was my first gig. So I was like, yay, I'm a shit hot stand up. You know, I was like, really went to I my know head. that gig. And then I got through to the semi-finals, which were up at the Edinburgh Festival. But my son came early, so I couldn't go to that particular thing and I couldn't do my routine about being pregnant. Anyway, the next year, um, I thought, okay, I've got a little baby now. I can do another go on this. So I went back, applied for the same competition. But I was, you know, a mum of a little baby. I didn't really have time to sort of think about it, to go into any practice gigs or anything. Went back and did the first round and I got through again. I think they felt sorry for me because of what happened to me the year before and they wanted me to go through. So I went through up to Edinburgh. <laughs> so I'm in like the Gilded Balloon, like, you know, a really amazing venue. And my routine was just shit. Like, it, I didn't... I tried to pretty much adapt the one I'd done before and adapt it to the person I was now. But it just didn't work. And because I'm an actor and I'd learned it as a script, I didn't have that sort of natural... Yeah, I just wasn't prepared enough. I was not remotely prepared for this gig, which was a really high level... <laughs> really high level. And I think Peter Kay had, like, won it the year before, like, this competition. So it was like, that's the level. And so, anyway, I absolutely died on my ass. It was the most humiliating experience. Like, none of my jokes were landing. Like, looking out into the audience, people's faces were just, like, stony. Like, <laughs> And, of course, up there, it's like, so you think you're funny. Yeah, impress us. Yes. They want more, even more from you than if you're just doing a, you know, an open mic night somewhere. It was absolutely hideous. And I didn't do it again for ages after that. It just knocked me sideways. I felt such a fool. But... I did go back and do stand-up again after that and I did manage to sort of get some more good gigs under my belt. But it's the kind of thing, like, it's terrifying, but it, it does give you a massive thrill. And it's, when it's when it's working and when you're... I mean, I, I love stand-up. I love Russell Kane is my particular favourite. Who does Evil Genius? The paradox of, is this person evil or are they a genius? Ah. Oh. Yeah. So, anyway. So I love it. The Alchemy of Transforming Trauma, where we talk about stand-up, but I fucking loved that. But it's, you know, those are traumatic experiences, actually. They are. That and was deeply traumatic for me and it took me a long time to get over it. Yeah. And we put ourselves into those situations because we're after the hit. Yeah. And there was a, there was, <laughs> it was just really funny. When I was just not, just finished doing stand-up, just wasn't doing it anymore. I used to run a night and I'd had enough. This survey came around saying, I'm doing a, I'm doing my psychology degree and I'm doing research into how many people who do stand-up have mental health issues. And I was so cross with that that I refused to fill in the survey because I was really suffering with my mental health. And one of the reasons I didn't go back, actually, was that survey because I thought to myself, what I'm looking for is an external hit to make me feel better inside and I know that it doesn't work. Because after my first gig, my very first gig also was like you described. It was... I mean, people were falling over themselves laughing. It was... People were hollering with delight yeah. in my, on my first gig. And it wasn't just my impression. I mean, it was a packed room. It was a positive, friendly audience. Yeah. And they were loving it. And so I came, I thought I was going to feel the best I could possibly feel. And on the tube on the way home, I was weeping because I didn't feel better. Wow. I just had the most high point of my life so far. I'd always wanted to do stand-up, done my first gig. It would. It had killed arse mixing my idioms. It had just... <laughs> kicked arse. Kicked arse. <laughs> It had killed it. It was yeah. absolutely the bomb. And I was weeping. I was so sad on the way home because I didn't feel better in myself. I didn't feel like a better person. I didn't have the man that I wanted. He was there with his, not with his girlfriend, but he'd said he'd be there with his girl. You know, it's just nothing in my life got better. And I think I was pinning my hopes on the fact that if I achieved my dreams, they, something would get better. 
It's so interesting. It, that, that is really... And this is relevant to just sort of talking oh, about because it's our stuff inside that is driving these outer actions that we take. You know, I think about my career and the work that I did before I experienced narcissistic abuse and my relationship to that work and how I interacted with it on every level. It's totally different now that I've had this experience because I'm now not doing it for the validation. Yes. I'm doing it because I just love it. I'm doing it for my own creative... And then, you know, making this podcast is something that's just come out of me. I'm not doing it because, you know, I'm actually terrified of, 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 of the consequences of doing this, but I know I have to do it. Yeah. And it comes from a, a deep desire in me to, to, to create this, whereas it's not, I'm not doing it to get external validation at all. And it, and I'm same with the acting work that I'm doing. And it, it just feels so liberating. And that's the difference because I have learned in the past. So I didn't go back to stand up because I thought, well, stand up. Put it put stand up in the category of unhealthy things for Jude Claiborne to do. <laughs> put it in there. That's not that's not the case. It's not it's not the external experience that's unhealthy, it's your relationship to it. That's what you yeah. just said. So if my relationship to stand up is do you know what? I really love being the person that everybody's looking at on stage. And that's just true. <laughs> I really do. I come alive. I'm My body relaxes in a way that it doesn't otherwise. And it's not because of the feedback. It's because I love doing it. Yeah. And I love making people laugh. But if I do it because I've got something to say and because I'm comfortable up there and because I enjoy playing with and having a whole audience to play with, how amazing is that? And I enjoy some, so much about it, but I'm not expecting it to make me whole. I know. And that's the same with me now. I don't need... If, if, a, if a play doesn't work... I mean, you know, at one point I was in Coronation Street and I, you know, my contract was cut short because, you know, the family that I was in it just wasn't working. And I took it so personally at the time. Like, I was devastated that this job had been given to me and then withdrawn so quickly. I was absolutely heartbroken. Um, and I can understand that on some levels I maybe self-sabotaged myself because I didn't think I deserved that level of success or that level of exposure in yeah. my life. I also was, you know, heavily drinking at the time as well, so I felt paranoid that people wouldn't see the real me, which was this damaged person full of addictive behaviours. I didn't want to be exposed in that way. So I, I can see that on some level I sabotaged it. But also... It wasn't a personal thing, and I took it very personally. Yeah. It was just like, it just didn't work as an idea, and that's not my fault, even though I play my part in that. There's a much bigger thing going on that I only have a very small influence over, but it felt extremely personal at the time. Was if I had that experience now, it would be completely different because I know that that job doesn't define who I am. Yes, and that's That's just a, an aspect of myself that I'm doing work, and, you know, the work that I do now, I mean, I just love it, but I don't... It's. Of course, it's really important to me and I care about it, but it isn't my whole life. Yeah. Me, Sam the Actress, is not who I am. That's an aspect of me. Yeah, exactly. And that's the same with relationships. So looking to a love relationship to make... I know this is old stuff, but we need reminding because we're reminded so often of the opposite through every love song ever. Yeah. Again. But through every film and every song and every story and every fable, we're, we're reminded of the opposite. So we need to keep reminding that your relationship with yourself is your primary relationship and when your relationship with yourself is healthy and loving and compassionate and you're in your heart and you can be kind to yourself through your body and through your soul, then your relationship with somebody else is going to have a completely different flavour to it because you're not looking for them to make you whole. Yeah. You're looking them to, to complement your already thriving relationship rather yeah. than to fill it because when you need somebody to fill it, you are going to attract somebody that needs that too and many of those people are going to be needing to use you as 
you know, if I'm doing that, I'm also using the person. I might not call myself a narcissist, but I'm also using the person to make me whole. Yeah, and that's totally. Okay. And that's something we really need to recognise and acknowledge because we can cast ourselves as victims of these, you know, bad people who are... But essentially we are doing a similar thing. Yeah. We've just got the capacity to have empathy and awareness around it, yeah. whereas they don't. Ah, interesting. And that's why we can heal from this stuff. And sadly, in my opinion, as it stands right now, I might change my mind about this, but I don't believe people with cluster B personality disorders can heal because part of the disorder itself means that you don't have you you're unconscious you're completely unaware of your actions and the impact that it has on other people or you might be aware of them but you don't have the capacity to care that's interesting because if you go because we we spend we spend our free time talking about sociopathy so when we talk about sociopathy you know we talk about the 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 level of calculation and manipulation and forward thinking that goes into you know we might be talking about years of grooming a person yeah and well we might be talking about convoluted lies and remembering lies and so they do have all sorts of awareness and they do have some self-awareness but what you've just pointed out they don't have the ability to care about that yeah because they don't have empathy so they cannot they don't see other people as people with their own needs and rights that, you know, they just see them as object. Everything is objectified. Everything. But they wouldn't, just like we were talking about when you're in a childhood experience, you don't see yourself as, oh, I'm being traumatised today. You see yourself as having your normal life. Yeah. So we're not expecting somebody to think, oh, today I shall go out and objectify some people. and, and That's just their norm. And also that thing of, because of their own disordered way of thinking and... and seeing how you know depending on what experiences created this narcissistic personality in the first place like in the same way that people with empathy project their own empathy onto other people and think that other people operate from the same set of values and the same things that that they do well a narcissistic person will think that everybody is the same as them everybody everybody is the same as them and so therefore it's me against you because you're going to use me if i don't use you first so i'm going to use you before you have a chance to use me in the way that I use other people because they project their way of being onto everyone else. That's why they're quite often very paranoid. And all of this, so the little, welcome to the inside of my mind, the little image that's game is, you know when you've got um, wooden posts underneath water and the water's moving a little bit and sometimes yeah. the post is visible and sometimes it's not. That's what I'm getting when you're talking about this. So sometimes there'll be a little wave of awareness that there is actually something happening here. Yeah. There's a possibility of self-awareness, but it will soon pass. Yeah, and that's why that's what the where the narcissistic supply comes in. Because it's the narcissistic supply, it's the energy and attention from someone else that takes them away from having to be that aware, if you see what I mean. So it's uncomfortable to be aware, just like... So we're back to what we started with. It's uncomfortable with. Of, re- of being in touch with your own trauma. So it's a, it's a bit like the distractions distractions that we are engaging yeah. from, our, from feeling our own body sensations. Yeah, it's exactly the same. Like, they cannot cope with... Well, in the case of narcissistic personality disorder and, and the sort of further levels up within that, they have completely disengaged from their true self, from their soul. Don't have connection to it anymore. and Or the very inklings that they do, it, it's so deeply traumatic for them to look at it, they can't bear it. So they have to constantly numb themselves out with the narcissistic supply, which is the energy and attention and significance that is given to them by the outside world. And just like with somebody we would consider traumatised, but not on the narcissistic spectrum in that way. It's not a moral decision. No. They haven't made... Somebody with a narcissistic, high narcissistic traits hasn't made a moral decision to be that way. I think it's really important to make that distinction. 
that's happened and then possibly later they aren't able to make the same kind of morally informed decisions that other people might make but they never made a decision to become like that they yeah. didn't wake up as a child and decide that they were going to choose you know today you choose good evil don't know that's a david trigley cartoon <laughs> which i shall post um you don't choose to be that way no it's a survival program yes yeah. a defense mechanism yeah this personality doesn't serve me i'm going to create a new one that does serve me and protects me and keeps me safe which is what we also do yeah so codependency, narcissism, it's two sides of the same coin. And obviously this is, this is why it runs in families. Because if you imagine you know, a narcissistic parent with a, a number of children, guarantee at least one of them is going to turn out as a narcissist and one of them is going to turn out to be extremely codependent in whatever way that presents itself. I mean, not always guaranteed that you're going to get a narcissist as a child, but it's golden child, scapegoat, all this stuff. It's all just creating these patterns and keeping them going. Yeah. And it all stems from trauma. Well, I feel like we're coming to the end, but I don't want to finish there. I want to finish on something more positive. So let's wonder what that might be. Well, just, you know. Not positive, but more kind of well, yeah, like generative. This, this whole thing is like, you know, it's about transforming and using your trauma yeah. to actually create thriving in your life as opposed to just merely surviving it. Yeah. So that's the message of what we're doing. So, you know, like we've talked a little bit about different things that you can do to address your trauma. But are there any more that we can recommend? So... I'm going to suggest one that I suggest to people all the time and that I do whenever I remember. If you're feeling really down or really angry or really whatever, or you know when you get that kind of a mood that just won't shift? Yeah. And you can't feel that you feel like you can't get out of it and it's always going to be this way. Move your hips. Mm. So this sounds really trite and a little bit facetious saying move your hips and it might seem like you're not slowing down and feeling it but what if you just want to get on with your day at this point yeah what if you don't have time to go into it right now or you don't want to make time in this moment yeah because <laughs> you know, i've never got time for it and this is why i'm still stuck there you go so but i have got time to move my hips because it doesn't have just done it now it took me less than a second if you're feeling really jolly, jolly interesting to look jolly at as well interesting. <laughs> And there's something about, uh, lots of practitioners say that you hold emotion in the hips. Sonia Choquette, who's a psychic, says that, um, what does she say? Is it so, is it the psoas muscle? Psoas muscle as well, yeah. It's, it's connected, goes round your hip and down into your inner thigh, doesn't it? If I'm in a bad mood and I, um, or I'm in one of those moods where I can't motivate myself to do anything, and I think, I'm not going to try and motivate myself, myself to do anything, <laughs> but I am going to not be in the mood to do something with my ass moving and so <laughs> even if I'm sat on my chair away. like now I'm mini, doing a mini twerk on the chair or I might just move my bum from the side do some little little buttock dancing it's really hard to stay stuck yeah it's really hard I would say it's impossible I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out a challenge <laughs> if you manage to move your hips and stay in exactly the exactly the same mood for more than a minute I want to hear from you. Okay. Challenge accepted. <laughs> and the other thing to do, I mean, just exercising can really help as well. Just oh doing anything. God. Like, just put something he's going to dance. Yeah. And if you don't, this is where five rhythms comes in. If you don't, like, originally, sweat your prayers, five rhythms, the idea was, if you don't like the music, dance not liking the music. Don't stop dancing. Dance fucking hating this moment. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have to dance for anybody else. You're not... Fucking hate. You're not showing people what it looks like when you hate dancing in this moment. You're just letting your body say, express how you feel for your own sake, not yeah. for anybody else's. 
For those of you who don't know what Five Rhythms is, oh it's um, it's called The Wave. What's the name of the woman who um, created it? Gabrielle Roth. She's, yes. She's not alive anymore, but she has... So Five Rhythms um, was taught by Gabrielle Roth until close to when she died and she gave it over to her son, whose methods didn't quite match his mother. So there's been a movement moving away from that to teach a new modality which is called open floor oh, okay. which is a lot of the teachers who trained with Gabrielle Roth and feel that they've moved they've kind of developed her essence into something new okay and they feel that the new the current five rhythms training is not the essence of what she was doing anymore but the lineage mm. so you've got lots of choices and there's loads of different movement medicine and all sorts of things basically they're spiritual spiritual they're dancing as a meditation so you don't talk when you're on the dance floor and there's no alcohol and there's no you know you're invited to come sober and stay sober for the duration no drugs no drink no anything that would get you out of your state and you just move to the music and you don't talk to anybody and you might dance with people you might not but there's no chitter no chitter chatter yeah i mean have you done much fiber then oh my god i just it would be five rhythm your ass off I five rhythmed until <laughs> I can't even think. Well, I can't even think of anything to say. I go and dance with Lee Tolson in Bristol because it's my nearest, but it's also my favourite. I used to dance I've never in been, London. I've heard loads about this. It's my favourite, my favourite. I've danced in it all the way through London with lots of teachers, and there are some amazing teachers. Sue Rickard's a call to dance. Um, she lists everybody's classes on her website, which is what I love about her. She will list everybody's classes. Good for her. That's yeah. great. Spread it She's, out. She is the, the grandmother of Five Rhythms. She's absolutely wonderful. She's compassionate and gorgeous. So basically, it's a facilitated meditative dance space, which doesn't mean that it's all slow. Oh, Five, no. I, yeah. Yeah. I, some really hardcore freaking yes. out sessions. Five Rhythms has five different movements. Yeah. Five waves. Uh, a wave is five, five different kinds of movement. But there's not much teaching involved. In some classes you'll have some teaching, but otherwise you just do the dance and the main thing is you don't talk on the dance floor. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I, I've, I've been to a few Five Rhythms classes and I genuinely enjoyed it, but I don't know. There were certain things that made me feel a bit uncomfortable and I don't really... No, I don't, know. I don't want to be judgmental about it because I can see the value in it. But I think I found it restrictive. Yes. Because it's like, I don't want to move my body like that. I want to move it in my own way. This is where you need a good teacher. Yeah, because I just felt like there's one there's one sort of, this is like a swirling sort of movement that everybody does. And I was just like, that. I don't dance like that. And, and I know it sounds judgmental, but I was just like, no. I don't want to dance like that. And also, the partner work, I sometimes found it difficult because, you know, it's like, I didn't want to connect with people sometimes. Yeah. I just wanted to be in my own space. And generally, you know, you'd, they'd be like, unconnect with the partner. I'd turn around and be like some really... I don't know, like some man there who was trying to fucking flirt with me or something like that. And I would find it really uncomfortable because it's like, I don't want to connect with you. Yeah. I want to connect with that girl over there, but she's right on the other side of the room. And I, I can't get to her in time because you've already nabbed me. I know that sounds... So I, this is why I love working with Lee. Because he always says, you have agency. It's your job. If you don't want to be dancing with them, you're not doing the other person any favours by staying there. Move away take responsibility yeah i mean uh, again it comes from that thing of like not feeling like i can hurt somebody's feelings by rejecting them in that way exactly but but i just felt like the energy sometimes was just a bit vicious and i was just like i don't want you fucking perving all over me right now exactly and that's judgment of me on there because maybe they weren't perving on me and maybe they were when i first started doing five rhythms 
So when I, hmm, I would have 50-something-year-old men yeah. following me around the dance yeah. floor. And that's partly because you knew meat and you've not been there before and partly because that's what was my story. That was, that was the age my dad was when I remember things happening. So 50-something-year-old men would follow me around the dance floor and I found it really hard. But after realising that I loved doing the dancing but I didn't like that, I just had to learn to set an energetic boundary and now it doesn't happen. Okay. And if it does, I know exactly what to do. And there's one guy who um, likes to dance with me. There's a couple of guys, actually, in the in the Bristol class who have liked to dance with me. One of them who, even outside the dance, is very touchy, and he wants, he was putting his hand on my waist, which I just don't like, and I was feeling really uncomfortable. And then one day I just said, don't put your hands on my waist. I don't like it. And he just went, oh. And then tried to come in to give me a hug, and I just went, oh, don't want it. And since then, he's been... <laughs> 95% not even trying to touch me. And when he does, I literally dance for him with my hands out like that. I'm not using words on the dance floor. I'm just going to do that. And the man backs off. And if he doesn't, it's not him, but if somebody doesn't, yeah, I've grown stronger through that. And I guess in some ways it's giving you that opportunity to practice your yeses and your noes. Yeah. And it's a held space. And when you go to a place that isn't a held space, you suddenly realise what a load of skill it takes to hold. Oh, yeah, I can get that. I mean, like, even when I go out raving, you know, you get hassled by guys, you know, especially in some of the places I go where it's quite male-heavy because the music's, you know, techno and it's not, you know, it's just got a sort of certain energy to it. And, I mean, I'm sometimes unbelievably rude to people. I'm not rude. I'm actually just, I'm not, I'm just, like, people trying to talk to you. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not come here to talk. I've come here to dance. And I don't really want to talk to you about where I come from and how, what, I'm not interested. Which is incredibly polite, because a lot of people are just... <laughs> Say fuck off. Right, last story of the day. Yeah, maybe. okay. <laughs> when I was in, when I was a teenager, I went to live in France, in south of France. And I was constantly followed down the street by men. And I'd be like, I don't know how to deal with this. And they'd be talking to me and I'd be saying, I don't want to talk to you. I'm blah, blah, blah. And no, I don't want to go for a date. And I was like, I can't get rid of them and my sister came to visit me my sister's a year older and she's much more in her body and she came to visit me <laughs> and I was like I don't know what to do it's always happening and basically the same thing happened she was coming to work my place of work and she went down the same street and the same thing happened bloke followed her she turned around and just went at him and he just walked away <laughs> Because what I was doing was trying to say no while staying attractive and while kind of receiving the attention. Wow, what she was doing was going, I'm not interested in your fucking attention. I'm not interested in your being attracted to me. I'm going to make myself ugly and bold. And she just did it and they never... And something about that in her energy meant that she didn't even have any more coming after her. Wow. I know. So isn't that interesting? That like, and I get that as well. Like, I'm not bold enough to say fuck off or leave me alone or whatever or make myself perhaps look unattractive within that rejection. Yeah. <laughs> because maybe there's a part of me that still wants them to find yeah. me attractive on some deep, deep, deep level, whilst I'm rejecting them. <laughs> so when my when my little yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm going to reject you, but I still want you to want me. Exactly. Exactly that. Exactly. How if if, that? if part of your de- self definition comes from being wanted. Or yeah. being admired or being valued from somebody else. And that's part of your sense of self. Of course you can't give up that bit. But my sister didn't have that as a sense of self. Yeah. She already had a really grounded sense of self. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I wanted to realise that. I, yeah. I think when I was younger I used to find it very difficult to um, let men know that I wasn't interested in them. Because there was a part of me that still wanted that 
validation. And so in some ways that's a manipulation because it's not being straight and clear with somebody and saying, nothing's going to happen, leave me alone, whatever. Or even like, you know, someone who's a friend, you know, and I, I would, I think there was a part of me that, you know, gave people a bit of hope when there wasn't any. Because, I mean, I feel quite ashamed saying that now because I know, I can understand where it comes from, but it feels very vain and very narcissistic to still want somebody to want you even though you don't want them. Well, I'm not ashamed of you. Thank you. I'm a little bit ashamed of that. I'm not proud of that part of me that want, that wants that. Or that, you know, would you use... In some way, it's a manipulation. It's like, give me your energy and your attention, but I'm I'm not going to be honest with you, brutally honest with you about where I stand because there's a part of me that still needs that validation yeah. from you. But it's also what you've been taught. I know, but it's good that I can recognise... I mean, I recognised it in myself a long time ago when I stopped that behaviour. But even so, it's like, you know, I can own it. Yeah. And recognise that as a as a young woman, I did that. And I think lots of us do it. So I was taught verbally that if you turn a man on, it's your job to make that, to sort that out. That was direct words from my dad. Wow. That's your job. That is your responsibility. You've given that man blue balls. Your job is to sort that out. And wow. I was taught by my mum that you shouldn't go out with certain types of people because they will expect you to have sex with them, so don't accept dinner, because that's you saying yes, they can have sex with you. I mean, what a fucked up message, which was coming from a place of, I don't want you to have this experience, but the message was, if you accept a meal from somebody, you are saying yes, that you'll have sex with them. And so don't go out with that kind of person, because you'll then be expected to follow through. So both of them in their own way were saying, you you lead a man on, it's your responsibility to sort them out. So I'm not going to give myself a hard time about no operating on that behavior because it was explicitly taught let alone yeah. i mean mine wasn't explicitly taught but i mean i do know that i've got a i you know i've noticed that within myself that about feeling grateful for attention mm, like grateful for it and that i should be glad that you know that that stuff's happening and you know and now i just i'm repulsed by it but it's interesting isn't it wow we've gone right off tangent but i, I think it. it's <laughs> Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to us papping on about our... It's <laughs> a, a kind of frantic way to claw it back. How does it feel in your body when you listen to all of this? How does your body feel? What resonates? How do you notice? Because sometimes those feelings, you know you like something by a feeling in your body, but your mind not, might not tell you that that's how you got that information. Mm. It might be underneath the level of unconscious. So which bits of this did you resonate with? Which bits did you not... Which bits made you angry? Still want to let us know. Yeah. You can get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram. You can email us on pastimperfectpodcast at gmail.com. You're so good. <laughs> and um, you can also, email, uh, no, you can also, we've, we've got a blog coming, haven't we? At we some have point. got a blog, but it hasn't quite been born. It's gestating for months like a baby. Okay, well, we're, we're ready. We'll, we'll be ready for that birthing when it happens. Yeah, there will be later. <laughs> there might be a bit of afterbirth if we're, if we're okay. <laughs> and on that note, tune in next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Over the hill I see the fire burning As in my dream now real as we are turning So what of love the moon and stars are asking While as the fire burns bright the night is passing
watch them swaying And though my heart cries All the birds are laughing Calling in the sunrise They are celebrating Wind 